News on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. IBM earnings top analyst estimates on mainframe and cloud services. Tech shares lead U.S. stock rebound as the euro slips on Greece debt. And China stocks drop on a record volume as margin curbs outweigh the PBOC. China's stocks have taken a beating uh, on worries about these further curbs. We'll discuss the situation this morning with our market's guest, William Ma of Gotex Penjing. Next, IHS Global Insights' Rajiv Biswas tells us what he's found at the 24th World Economic Forum on East Asia in Jakarta. And our final guest, Tom Burney of Invisible Kitchen, enlightens us about culinary gastronomic experiences through catering. Stuart Alcroft of City Trust is our guest host this morning. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita, and happy Tuesday to you. And to you, Stuart. <laughs> Not usually here on Tuesdays. <laughs> but we like having you here any day of the week. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. <laughs> now, Stuart, when we closed the show yesterday, Alex Wong was hopeful that uh, local markets wouldn't actually close down. But alas, do you think they've got a uh, further way to go? No. Okay. <laughs> um, I think the market's probably a bit volatile at the moment, but with the US going up quite strongly overnight, uh, that could be a good direction. There are a couple of concerns about China, and I think William will uh, take us into that shortly. But uh, I think Ch- China is still the m- most dominant uh, influence over the Hong Kong market. Well, okay. So US markets have indeed surged, recovering nearly all of Friday's sell-off as tech shares, including Apple and Microsoft, rallied before announcing their company earnings. The Nasdaq advanced 1.3% to 4,994. The S&P 500 rallied, um, jumped uh, 1%, excuse me, to 2,200. And the Dow Jones increased 208 points or 1.2% to 18,034. That's after plunging almost 280 points last Friday. IBM's first quarter profits beat analyst estimates that were already significantly lowered. And uh, this was helped by sales of its mainframe and cloud computing services. Sales, however, missed projections. There's talk now that uh, Greece does default, but uh, that it doesn't have a Grexit. So where exactly then are things headed? Here's UBS's uh, co-head of global asset allocation, Mark Anderson. It's unbelievably difficult at this point in time. I mean, the showdown now looks to be mid-May, where the finance ministers are coming together. Hopefully they'll come up with a deal so we can see Greece uh, not defaulting and not leaving the eurozone, but I guess the questions are up there. We even think it's a bit more than 50% chance that they will actually default. Uh, Now the question is, what on earth is that going to do to the rest of the eurozone? We saw Spanish-Italian yields, they moved up a little bit over the last couple of trading sessions, but still with 10-year yields around 1.5%, it's still far from the 7-8% level we saw uh, a couple of years ago. And yes, the rest of the uh, economy is doing relatively well still. 
So, Stuart, you know, I thought that uh, default and Grexit go hand in hand, but apparently not. What are your thoughts on this? Well, not really. I mean, the two are independent. Uh, I think the issue of Greek um, or Grexit, as it's, it's termed, I mean, it's going to be an ongoing discussion probably for at least another year because there's so many uh, debts that the, the Greek government have to pay off. And now they're asking for uh, nationalised industries, state-owned uh, industries, to pay up what, whatever cash they've got left over. I mean, they'll be taking uh, kids' pocket money next if they have to, yes, just to pay like the, uh, the overseas debts. So uh, if it does default, then what? <laughs> well, yes, I mean, that's uh, obviously going to be quite a serious issue. And, and frankly, I think there's probably being a, a sort of bit of a standoff going on in Europe now between Germany and possibly the rest of Europe over uh, how to deal with the Greek debt crisis. Germany is being very tough about it, thinking that it's got to get its money back. Whereas many parts of Europe are saying, well, we don't see the need at this point um, if it's going to cause such trouble. Mm. And probably a number of them are saying that because they could be in the same position themselves if they're not careful. Oh, more to uh, wait and uh, watch and uh, see how things unfold. (laughs) Okay, so uh, closer to home, China's stocks fell from a seven-year high on record turnover as uh, regulatory efforts to curb speculative trading overshadowed the central bank's biggest cut to the reserve requirements since 2008. Leland Miller is the president of the China Beige Book, and he says that the 1% reserve requirement ratio wasn't really significant. You can't stimulate when, 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 uh, when banks aren't lending to the right people and when firms don't want to borrow. So you can, you can cut the RR rate. They have a lot of ability to do that type of stuff throughout the year. But at the end of the day, you're freeing up a bunch of liquidity. There's already extraordinary amounts of liquidity in, in, in the system. Firms don't want it. They're not borrowing. They're not spending. So this is not going to help growth. So the move did succeed in pumping about 1.2 trillion yuan, which uh, helped to offset the capital outflows that we've seen in China in the first quarter of the year, uh, which total about 430 billion yuan. But would the magnitude of this move suggest that things are actually worse than what meets the eye? I think it's just as worse than we're seeing. We're seeing negative electricity consumption as well. The HSBC PMI is below 50. So I think it's suggesting that the growth might even be weaker than the official numbers are, are stating. And they're coming in with a big message here that they want to support the, the economy. The big question mark is really is liquidity enough? I think they should be cutting interest rates as well, which I think we're likely to see as well. And some targeted uh, stimulus messages uh, around the property market as an mm. example. That was uh, UBS's Mark Anderson once again. Now, William Rhodes is president of the William Rhodes Global Advisors, and he says that even though they've dropped interest rates and reserve requirements twice since November, it's not going to be enough to stimulate. I think uh, that what we're going to see is a couple of things. Number one, I think what we're seeing in the general economy is that the uh, bubble that we saw in uh, property, real estate and construction uh, is, is starting to burst or has been bursting. And so you see a real problem there. And if you, you take a look at the GDP of China, uh, that area is anywhere between 15 and 30 percent of the total economy. Financial Times says 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of Chinese economists think it's 30 percent. And the question is, what's going to happen there? The shadow banking, all of these issues are coming to the fore. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're going to see is uh, in the debt of the municipalities and provinces that was built up uh, since 2008. So I think 
we're into a new normal where growth is not going to exceed 7%. In fact, I don't see it reaching 7%. I think it's somewhere this year will be more like 6.5%. The IMF says 6.8%. But at the same time that they're trying to stimulate the economy, uh, they they promise to take measures uh, which are longer-term measures like freeing up uh, deposit rates and putting in uh, deposit insurance. But all of this stuff is happening at the same time. So local shares suffered their biggest one-day fall in four months yesterday. The Hang Seng Index fell 2% or 558 points to close at 27,094. The Shanghai Composite dropped 1.6% to 4,217 at the close, while the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index in Hong Kong declined 3%. Despite the sell-off, demand for the Hong Kong dollar remained quite strong. The Monetary Authority injected more than $2.3 billion into the banking system to prevent the currency from rising beyond the strong side of the U.S. dollar peg. And other Asian markets, except for the Kospi, were also in the red. All right, let's bring in our first guest of the morning. Uh, this is William Ma, and he is the Chief Investment Officer at Gotex Penjing Asset Management. Good morning, William. Morning. So, William, you know, the Shanghai Composite has jumped 77% in the last six months. I mean, isn't the market overdue for a correction anyway? I think um, there is a short-term pullback, as you mentioned. The momentum has been really, really strong if we consider the depth and the volume we are talking about. But in the medium to longer term, uh, we remain constructive on the A-share market as well as the X-share market. And, uh, you know, China, of course, you know, has to create demand. I mean, isn't that the real problem? You've got companies dealing with debt. You've got companies dealing with overcapacity in some sectors. Uh, you've got loan demand, you know, down right now. Uh, is, isn't the issue actually that, you know, as much supply as you create, if the demand just isn't there, then uh, how are you going to solve the problem? Agree. I think the equity market is an efficient market. Despite in the China-Asia market, 90% of the volume is driven by retail investor. But no, if we are talking about um, the China reform transformation, I believe a lot of the bad news is already priced in, and we are going to see the benefit of those reform. And when it reflected in the company earnings, people realize is that the upside is more. Do you think the government is very supportive of the stock market in China? I think it's very obvious uh, if you look at the, the 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 timing of the announcement of the the, the control. You know, one they announce a kind of negative catalyst or negative control, but the other day they go and say something to comfort the market. But again, I think it's also a market consensus that there is a shadow the Chinese government put on the equity market. Mm, there's a lot of cash sitting around in China too. I mean, we've seen uh, figures estimated between two and a half and three and a half trillion dollars just in corporate bonds and, and, and through the sort of secondary banking or wealth management products. Uh, of course, the target is to try to release some of that money into the equities market too. Uh, so every time that something happens, it's got to be seen to be positive for the equity market, hasn't it? Yes. Um, actually, China is late to the game. If you wind mm. the cock black, you know, back in 08, US is the first one is doing it and Europe is doing it again and now is the, the, the round to China. So there is an, an argument that the money will go to the equity market instead of the physical business. That so quantitative easing with Chinese characteristics. Exactly. <laughs> uh, William, what do you see as more effective? I mean, cutting rates or bringing down reserve requirements? 
I think cutting rates <coughs> is uh, is more effective if you look at the actual burden of the the, uh, the property developers and also the companies who rely on that. Cutting the out 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 um, as some other comment. Uh, mentioned before, actually, there is excess capacity, uh, excess liquidity in the market already. Does China have to follow both, do you think, simultaneously? They have actually more than two tools, if you like, to support the market. I think they are going to flow in more and more different uh, policy to surprise the market. I see. Stuart, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, well, Yes, I think it's. I, mean, I, I agree with William to the extent that there is a clearly a desire to see support for the market, which would then suggest there is an underpinning of the market too. That's got to be good for Hong Kong because Hong Kong relies more heavily on China than it does anywhere else. The question is, how does Hong Hong Kong reflect that? And you know, I think William, you probably have a view that uh, Hong Kong. Uh, is still a little bit behind the curve in some respects, isn't it? Exactly. Um, I think the current you know market hype, if you like, is the Hong Kong shares is trading at a discount to the A shares, which makes sense in the short term. But in the long run, I believe investors have to focus on the company fundamental as the broad picture. China is slowing down whether the company earnings and catch up and justify, you know, we rating of mid-teens type of PE to 20 or 30 times of PE like the China-Asia market is remain to be seen. Yeah, but now, H- Hong Kong financials are falling behind a little bit. I think that's probably the one area that is is a bit negative in the Hong Kong scene, isn't it? Exactly. Now, William, you know, the one thing that really, you know, stands out here is the Chinese regulator, regulators on one side want to control the markets, um, you know, or, or that's what analysts suspect, and then you've got the PBOC injecting liquidity into the system. Um, why are they working out of whack? I mean, do they not talk to each other? I think they talk to each other, but they are not talking to each other at the same time. So mm. you, you're, we are talking about controlling the second, if not the largest equity market in the world. Uh, and any piece of news is being closely watched by the retail and every single investor. So they have to, the regulators have to uh, uh, observe the reaction of the market as well. So they give up one policy. If the market sentiment is too negative, then they will come up with another policy in a short matter of time. And it's a very difficult job to do. All right, William. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is William Ma, and he is the Chief Investment Officer at Godex Penjing Asset Management. A quick look at the numbers uh, this morning. The Nikkei is up uh, half uh, a percent, half a percent, to 19,723. Australia's ASX index is up to tenth of a percent to 5,819. And Seoul's Kospi also up three tenths of a percent to 2,153. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.07 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 119 yen. And one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 55 cents. And also 1.49 US dollars. The road is not for text messaging, nor for social networking. And of course, not for mobile games. Drivers should always be on the alert. Those who use mobile phones or tablets while driving are risking their lives. For safety's sake, keep your hands on the steering wheel and your eyes on the road. No distractions. Drivers should pay attention to the road ahead.
The time is now 8.18 a.m. and Jakarta is hosting the 24th World Economic Forum on East Asia with the theme Anchoring Trust in East Asia's New Regionalism. IHS uh, Global's Chief Economist Rajiv Biswas is in Jakarta right now at the forum and he joins us by phone. Good morning, Rajiv. Good morning. So, Rajiv, tell us firstly, how is East Asia's new regionalism defined? I think when you look at what's happening in the region, one of the key areas of growth momentum is the ASEAN 10 countries. And I, I think what we're seeing emerging in the last uh, five years or so is there's a lot of new dynamic between this group of 10 Southeast Asian countries that make up ASEAN, linking into other East Asian economies, particularly with China, with South Korea, and with Japan, which is now called the ASEAN Plus Three grouping. And this uh, linkage has been very much developed by trade agreements, free trade agreements between the ASEAN grouping and with China. That's an important linkage. Uh, And also other initiatives for trade liberalization that are being negotiated at the moment. So I think one dimension of this uh, regional interlinkage is very much through trade. We're also seeing very strong investment flows between the East Asian economies. And of course, the latest initiative by China, which is to create the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the Silk Road Fund, are very much intended to put a lot of money into infrastructure in Southeast Asia to help the development um, of some of the low-income countries in the region. Uh, And that's also going to accelerate the interconnectivity. Mm. Uh, Now, Rajiv, the the investment flows going into the ASEAN region, are they going into manufacturing at all? I think we're seeing a mixed picture. So Thailand has long been a hub for manufacturing investment. So a lot of money has come from um, Japan, from China and Korea into uh, Thailand, especially in their auto industry, in their electronics industry. We're also seeing the emergence of uh, Vietnam as a hub for electronics investment. But I think some of the other uh, large economies, particularly in Indonesia, um, it's a little bit of a mixed picture. Indonesia is managing to attract a lot of investment into the auto sector for the domestic economy, but it hasn't yet become a manufacturing export hub. And I think that's the big challenge for the next decade ahead, particularly for the new president, Jokowi, who gave a fantastic speech yesterday at the World Economic Forum um, and really uh, conveyed a message of a very positive uh, momentum for the Indonesian economy and that he would be very favorable towards foreign investment. Stuart, I think you had a question of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. How do you think that's going to help ASEAN economies? I think the big focus from China's point of view is to build connectivity um, between China and ASEAN countries and to the south. Uh, and that will help China to link in to the Indian Ocean, which in terms of logistics will be very helpful for inland Chinese provinces. Do you see it working differently from the Asian Development Bank, for example? Um, I think the Asian Development Bank could work with the AIIB. I think the the membership of the Asian Development Bank has many of the same members. 
So I don't think there's necessarily any issue about rivalry because in the end, it's the same countries that are sitting on the boards. So they should be able to work together, I would say. But I think one of the key differences between the Asian Development Bank um, and the AIIB will be voting rights, uh, a problem that has been inherent in the Bretton Woods system of the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, is that developing countries don't have a lot of voting rights. So I think the AIIB will have a lot of Chinese funding and China will have a bigger voice. Um, as will other developing countries as well. All right, Rajiv, thank you so much. Uh, Unfortunately, we're out of time. That is Rajiv Biswas, and he's the Asia-Pacific Chief Economist at IHS Global. Time is now 8.23 a.m. And you might not know our next guest, but you'll certainly recognize his clientele. Tom Burney has been a private chef for Keanu Reeves and Lady Gaga, Kylie Minogue, and local celebrities like Karen Mark. He's a founder and chief executive chef of Invisible Kitchen, which is a gourmet catering company that launched last year in Hong Kong. And he's also worked with uh, Michelin-starred kitchens, or in Michelin-starred kitchens, I should say, owned by the British celebrity chef Heston Blumenthal, uh, famous for playing a liquid uh, nitrogen with his food and making it like a performance. So uh, good morning, Tom. Uh, welcome to Money for Nothing. Good morning, Vanita. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, Tom, you know, you have chefed for so many celebrities outside of Hong Kong. What made you want to come here and set up shop? Um, Hong Kong is very appealing to me because Hong Kong loves food. Um, simple answer, really. So as, as a chef, I was natu- naturally drawn to Hong Kong with variety and different levels of food available. Um, you know, it, it was a no-brainer. As well as the weather and the travel options, obviously. Yeah, the weather, that, that's always uh, the, the standard you know, <laughs> uh, for so many people. Now, uh, you have set up this company last year. What made you want to set it up as a catering company rather than going full-on and uh, you know, opening up a restaurant? Um, well, as you mentioned, some of, the, some of the clients I've catered for over the last few years, they've actually been uh, in Hong Kong. Um, my previous and, and ongoing uh, company here is called Hong Kong Personal Chef, which is actually a private chef service. Um, I've been running um, for private clients, private yachts, lots of backstage celebrities here in Hong Kong. As that business grew, lots of my clients were asking for different kinds of services, so special occasion birthday parties, cocktail events, uh, even casual barbecues. So a catering company seemed like a natural progression of what I was already doing here. Um, regarding the actual uh, restaurant option, uh, when I started off as a sole proprietor, the rents, the high rents in Hong Kong are quite inhibitive. So uh, in terms of capital and ongoing outlay, uh, catering was, was the only option for me. Now, is catering a lot different, just you know, in terms of a business model, than actually running a restaurant or a private kitchen? Um, it's more similar to a private kitchen. Um, in, if you're running a restaurant, the overheads, um, you, know, you know, your fixed costs are high regardless of what your business is doing. With a catering or a private kitchen, you have more control 
um, over, over your running costs, you can actually fluctuate a little bit more depending on the business coming in. And, and why is that? Well, why do you actually have more? Because you still need to have licenses. You need, still need to cook in a commercial kitchen. So what actually gives so, you more control? For example, um, with our events, we, we know we have events every weekend. And we have our, obviously a team of chefs. Uh, in the kitchen, we have our back office team, um, but we ha- we use professional waiters, um, but they're not our full time staff. So we can bring in waiters when we have a big event. I can bring fifteen or twenty professional waiters in, whose salaries we are not having to cover week in week out. Whereas with restaurants, um, you know, obviously with salary costs uh, in any any restaurant, most F and B is is a huge factor. So being able to have a little bit more control over that aspect of, of the costs is good. Now, certainly in the West, I mean, people uh, cater for small groups as well. I mean, families cater. Um, But does that exist in Hong Kong? I mean, this is a big uh, events place. So I'm assuming that catering only happens at big sort of functions. So, of course, there is uh, is a massive uh, corporate catering market here. Um, You know, all the the big banks, the the big offices, it's all big functions. Um, But also... You know, we do a lot of casual uh, home catering. Um, it's people having dinner parties, celebrating wedding anniversaries or special occasions. Um, it's barbecues. See, Hong Kong loves to barbecue. Um, you know, Westerners and foreigners and locals alike. So, uh, you know, we provide very high quality uh, ingredients. We prepare things simply and we provide those you know, effortless experiences for people. High quality barbecue, Stuart. I mean, so we don't even have to do the work ourselves. What do you think of that? Well, I think the Australians will be a bit upset about the thought of having someone else cook for them. <laughs> um, but, of course, you're presumably providing a few tinnies as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, there is a big difference between catering for the masses and doing private um, cooking, and that's, of course, the volume and the types of food. Uh, have you got any particular content, uh, comments on that? Uh, because clearly you'd, uh, when you have to cater for 50 or 100, it's very different from 5 or 10. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the big challenges when I first started in Hong Kong was finding suppliers um, who could provide the produce of a quality I was happy to use um, you know after being here a few years you know now I can say we focus on three things um, with our produce you know it's high quality um, that means most of our produce comes from Europe it comes from Australia um, and it comes from Hong Kong we use local organic produce um, everything is chef made I'm a chef. I'm very passionate about food. So I've created a chef-led business rather than most catering companies have business-led chefs who are not doing what they want to be doing. All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. Very, very interesting stuff indeed. Tom Burney is the founder and executive chef at Invisible Kitchen. And here we are at the end of the show. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up half a percent to 19,727. Australia's ASX index up uh, eight-tenths of a percent to 5,857. And Seoul's Kospi up, uh, sorry, down just slightly, 0.05% uh, to... Uh 2,145. Gold currently stands at $1,193.50 and Brent crude oil is at $63.35. 
So, Stuart, here we are at the end of Tuesday. Um, you think that the markets, the local markets, are not going to go down too much. What else are you expecting? Well, volatility is there uh, every day this week, I think, and uh, you know, down two and a half, maybe up one and a half today. I, I, it's very difficult to forecast markets in the current climate, um, but I don't think there's anything to be worried about in, in the long term. It's probably quite a good buying opportunity this morning. All right. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on a Tuesday this time. You're That's welcome. Stuart Aldcroft, chairman of City Trust and our usual Wednesday guest host. And I am Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be cloudy with a few showers at first. The temperature right now is 23 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 76%. Time for the news with Samantha Butler. The European Union has outlined a 10-point plan to tackle the migration crisis in the Mediterranean in response to the latest tragedies at sea that have seen hundreds of people die. Search and rescue efforts will be strengthened and there will be a systematic campaign to destroy boats used by people smugglers. The measures will be discussed by leaders at an extraordinary summit on Thursday. Donald Tusk is the council president. We cannot accept that hundreds of people die when trying to cross the sea to Europe. This is why I have decided to call an extraordinary European Council this Thursday. I do not expect any quick fix solutions to the root causes of migration. But I do expect that the Commission and the European External Action Service will present options for immediate action.